This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 33 of our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 29th of August. Leon, what have we got on? Well, Gary, it's been a full week of news, but uh, we're starting it off with a terrific interview with RMIT professors Warren Staples and Charlie Wang, they're going to be talking to us all about the social benefits of Chinese investments in Australia. And then while we're on this topic of China, we're going to have a chat with economist Francis Gray about the Chinese property market that has the world so worried. And I think he's got China worried as well. Well, anyway, let's start off with uh, chatting with Warren Staples and Charlie Wang. Dr. Warren Staples and Charlie Wang, uh, you've done a study looking at the uh, community engagement by Chinese invested firms in Australia. Now, recently we've had enormous amount of Chinese outward foreign direct investment in mining resources, in agribusiness, infrastructure, other areas. Um, and so tell me, who did you interview for this study? Over the past 10 years, we have interviewed uh, 56 managers from the Chinese companies. They are either senior managers or mid-level managers. Um, we also interview a lot of the local government officials and the community leaders in this project. So overall, we interviewed 56 people. And I think you could say that they were drawn from the types of sectors that you're talking about, uh, minerals and resources, agribusiness, uh, professional services, airlines, uh, telecommunication companies. Banking. Banking. Yeah. Manufacturing. Manufacturing, yeah. Um, but probably uh, slightly more drawn from the resources sector, but that's reflective of uh, that there's been more investment in those sectors and it's probably been th their more established operations, some of them. And did you, did you, talk, you also talked to government officials, did you not, uh, at local and state levels in WA, Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, um, I think that in um, in some of those environments, the local governments are very important in connecting these companies with communities, particularly in Western Australia, where they've got um, uh, kind of long experience of mining operations, and uh, the local government becomes a, a pretty important um, uh, kind of facilitator of connecting uh, communities with. Um, the company, but also in kind of expressing the desires of that local community to the companies. Now, what makes your study so important is that we all know the importance of uh, Chinese foreign direct investment in Australia in an economic sense. But what's interesting is about the community engagement by these Chinese companies. And that's what your study investigates. Now, this is new territory. What did you find well, I think what you're highlighting is absolutely right. And I think the what hasn't been known is some of this social stuff. I think when Chinese businesses have operated in different locations, there's been kind of sometimes rumour and innuendo, but very little fact about how they're operating. I guess what we found, maybe Charlie would like to say something about. Um, usually, you know, Chinese companies, they have uh, invest a lot in the uh, social benefit, but uh, most of them are keeping no low profiles in this area. Um, we find you know, they have invested a lot in the um, culture and the um, sport events. Yeah. Yeah, they also invest, you know, uh, invest a lot in the uh, infrastructure in the uh, rural community. They spend a lot of time and effort in um, the uh, community facilities. 
Yeah, so I think I, I think Charlie's um, touched on lots of the important themes that there's been a lot of art and culture in in regions and in communities, and some of that has been about um, Chinese culture and awareness of Chinese culture and promoting that in regions, but also there's been sporting events um, and sporting in sponsorship. But then I think at the other end of the spectrum of involvement, there's been kind of community empowerment and development where community groups are able to work with these companies to um, kind of shape the agenda and and what, what will be invested in. And I think there are numerous examples in Western Australia where that's been done in particular regions around lots of infrastructure, but infrastructure involving community groups in ways that has far more benefit for the community in kind of developing some capacity and resilience. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, so I think of um, a community farming initiative in um, Midwest region of uh, WA in which um, a mining company recognised they had a, a kind of spare plot of land and what they did was they encouraged community groups to bid uh, on the right to use that plot of land and then um, they could then farm that piece of land. Now in, in farming that they then, the community groups then looked for things like seed, um, fuel for um, actually running the, the cropping and harvesting machines. And so by providing this bit of land, the community groups were able to access it and bid on who could win it and then try to attract other bits of the equation to help them produce uh, a harvestable crop. Now, best case scenario in that was a crop of a value of about $100,000. Now, for a community group, that's an enormous piece of um, fundraising. You know, that's something that they wouldn't be able to do through raffle tickets, etc., and it enables them to upgrade their facilities, and we've seen that invested in um, solar panels for a, a, a sporting club. Right, and so the Chinese firm would have invested in that? Yeah. Well, they provided the land, and then other Chinese invested firms have provided um, other parts that have enabled them to do it but the community group still has to actually go and physically do it themselves and have to get themselves organised in that way. To oh, that's fascinating. I mean, what, what, what would be the major challenges faced by the Chinese firms going down this direction? Uh, certainly, we have identified several challenges for Chinese firms to better engage communities. Uh, the first one is how to resource community engagement because at this moment, um, not many Chinese firms had a specific budget for community engagement. And uh, this is one of the critical challenges for many local managers to plan and implement their community engagement program. Uh, the second challenge is the, um, the dialogue and the communications. And this is another critical issue because um, many Chinese firms are not emphasized a lot the dialogue and the communication with the communities in this case here. The third one is social participation. We find that some Chinese companies are very active in doing that. But however, there are a lot of the Chinese companies do not emphasize the importance of participating in the social network and the events. Um, 
The uh, the last one is about the uh, strategy and the management systems, and this is a very important issues because having a strategy can make a company very clear about the direction to go, and have a management system will make sure the company has a standards and the procedures in dealing with community. That's interesting because the Chinese companies would have come from a completely different political climate that doesn't lend itself to communication, that doesn't lend itself to participation, and doesn't lend itself to management systems. Is that right? Yes, and that's something that Charlie and I have reflected upon a lot. I mean, in China, companies clearly have social responsibilities, but the social responsibilities are directed very much within the firm at employees. So they might provide universities, healthcare, childcare, etc. for employees, but in terms of engaging with a broader community, that's very much seen as the role of government. So in Australia, the institutional environment is quite different and sometimes companies can come here and not they won't completely understand that environment initially. Now that said, the Chinese government has recognised that for state-owned enterprises when operating internationally, that they must engage in um, corporate social responsibility and there have been guidelines on that from the Chinese government. One of the interesting factors of this is that in many respects you'd find a Chinese company with a culture going back, what, 10,000 years, dealing with an Aboriginal community with a culture going back 50,000 years. And on the ground between individuals, then understanding on both sides would need to be a lot of hard work, wouldn't it? You might, you might think, yeah, I mean, what you've said is undoubtedly true, but in the Indigenous um, arena, a lot of the Chinese companies have done some, ter- some very, very good things. Could you give me some examples of that? We're talking, again, with companies in Western Australia um, where they've got... Um, very comprehensive pre-Indigenous employment programs um, that are about engaging um, Indigenous employees in the workforce and it's not just about um, channelling them into their their kind of company's workforce. Part of it involves a whole range of contractors that could send them to any of the partners involved in the program. But also um, there's um, Indigenous farming initiatives that supply the mine with chickens and eggs and there's uh, aquaponics yeah so there's there's been innovation kind of entrepreneurial development um, supply and employment kind of benefits we find several Chinese companies they have a special program to uh, employ indigenous people and uh, they try to not just directly employ them in the company but also uh, ask their contract to employ them to, to their companies. So, for example, we find in Carrara, they already employed directly and indirectly 52 peoples. Uh, in the uh, MMG, they have a target of employing 5% of the people from the indigenous community. But I think the point you make is right, that when companies, um, companies come here from China, the complexity of negotiating with native title and indigenous communities that, you know, that in the Australian eyes have legitimate uh, stakes in their business is complex and requires some kind of local knowledge and experience. 
Yeah, and you're, you're dealing with, on the ones on the Chinese side, you're dealing with people who basically are hunter-gatherers and they need to make a transition to farming, say, in order to join with the Chinese company in some sort of business. A lot of the indigenous issues have been attempted to have been um, solved by government over long periods of times and have proven to kind of be these intractable and wicked problems. But I think that some of the innovative projects of, as we said, MMG Limited with the uh, pre-indigenous employment program, uh, Carrara with their innovation park and some of their supply, um, have proven to be, I think, perhaps more effective than some government-led um, initiatives. And how do the local communities take to these Chinese companies coming in? Mostly, I think they've been very positive. A lot of them have um, welcomed the investment and they've welcomed the opportunity, employment and social that has gone with that investment. Certainly, I know the, uh, the feeling, the sentiment in the uh, local community area are very positive about the Chinese uh, investment because the Chinese invest- investment not only provide economic benefit but they also provide social benefit to the local community. So uh, the investment initiative are generally welcome by the local community. And maybe I'll just say one more thing that, you know, um, there's a particular company that we talk about in this Sino Steel Midwest Corporation that um, that bought a dormant mine site and developed it. And the way in which their partnership with the local community has benefited them in terms of infrastructure is just quite staggering. And the, and the community talk about them and recognise how good a corporate citizen they've been. And what are the benefits for the Chinese firms in doing this? This is a very interesting uh, question. Um, when we spoke to the uh, Chinese managers, they say there are several benefits they have actually received from such community engagement practicing here. The first one is to gain legitimacy. To gain legitimacy? Yes. Because as one manager saying that, say when we came to Australia, no one knew us. No one knew our operation. So we have to, to do some community engagement to make sure our operations will be accepted and approved by the local communities. That's the first one. The second benefit is about the um, economic benefits. Some companies are saying that their organization has gained market share and improved their financial performance because of their effort in engaging local communities. The uh, third benefit is uh, uh, to, um, to increase their uh, international competitive advantage. Some leading companies are actually use community engagement to try to increase their competitiveness nationally and internationally. And conceivably, this could actually become a benchmark for Chinese firms investing in other countries as well, couldn't it? Yeah, well, I think that um, the kind of host country environment of Australia and particularly knowledge and know-how in minerals and resources, I think that there's been a, a determined strategy on the behalf of Chinese companies to learn from the Australian operators. And I think, as Charlie said, they're then using this experience to move into other parts of the world and learn about how to engage. Warren Staples and Charlie Wang, thank you very much. Thanks, Leon. Cheers. Thank you. 
Yeah, they say Charlie and, and Warren say the Chinese, particularly mining companies out west, are taking a very responsible attitude towards the local people and their rights and needs. Uh, it's interesting that the Chinese are actually taking all of that into account, uh, when, particularly when they don't come from that sort of culture. Exactly right, yeah. And uh, they've apparently been doing some pretty reasonable work. That's right. And now let's have a chat with economist Francis Gray all about the Chinese property market. I should point out that we spoke to Francis, who was in Sydney, by Skype, uh, to his mobile phone, and so there's a fair amount of background noise and uh, quite a difference in audio. So apologies for that, and uh, we hope it's not too difficult. Francis Gray, China seems to be going through a record slump in property prices. Property prices have been collapsing in Chinese cities, and uh, that's a bit of a worry when you consider what happened to America's property market and uh, the repercussions of that with the global financial crisis. Yes, it is a worry, and it's, it's quite reasonable that the whole world will get post-traumatic stress syndrome from watching yet another major economy go through yet another property crisis. Uh, but I think that it'd be overblown to do that. The American uh, housing crisis was a, you know, a, an amazing shooting yourself in the foot exercise by American financial markets and American financial market regulators. They did it to themselves and it was spectacular. But I don't believe the Chinese one is of the same character and nature. And the regulators in China have much higher performance requirements uh, in the sense that if you don't get it right, you can find yourself in a very difficult, life-threatening situation. In China, the financial market regulators there need to keep that economy on track. They need to keep it on track in order to ensure political stability in China. And as a result, when and if this property market was to fall too far, they will turn on the lending spigots and taps and allow the cash to flow, which at the moment they're not doing. I suspect they're doing a bit of a cleanup of the sector. Uh, they're knocking out the people who are not favourite uh, and keeping the people who are favourites. And uh, you know, when it gets serious, I think they'll turn on the lending taps and let that, and let that situation uh, solve itself. Because you're saying there's plenty of liquidity still in China as opposed to what was the situation in America? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying that the management of the monetary policy in China is likely to be better than the management policy, uh, monetary policy going on in the United States in the run-up to their global financial crisis. So it's not a question of liquidity. There's always liquidity. The key point to remember is that Alan Greenspan said of the American financial crisis, uh, I think in the last 18 months, you know, people talk about America going broke. Alan Greenspan said quite specifically, and he's the architect of this crisis, in, uh, in, you know, there's no way he can get around that. He calls the GFC through his um, lax oversight of the system. Uh, he has said quite clearly that America will never go broke because if we start going broke, we will print money. China can do the same. They will print money if necessary. So liquidity is not the issue in any of these circumstances, as the GFC process has now proven. The fact that people think it is an issue here is a misunderstanding of monetary policy. The Chinese, I don't think, suffer that misunderstanding because I think they've got a reasonable grasp that they can actually um, generate loan funds and ship them out there and get that economy moving again. Whereas the Americans were under the view that they had no money in the kitty to put out there into banks until, of course, um, the US Federal Reserve started basically printing money with their computer and buying back debt from the banks that were in trouble. So those central banks, the Lehman Brothers, et cetera, who collapsed, 
they uh, that moment scared the American central bankers into action at last, and they started to basically buy back the debts of these American banks in order to keep the system afloat. Um, got on the same bandwagon under Mario Draghi when he stated, we will do whatever it takes to stop this in Europe. That was a couple of years, that was um, almost four years, I think, after the GFC, where the Americans had learned the same lesson. I think the Chinese understand that lesson already, um, and they're not going to let their system fall over uh, for the want of a few empty apartments in various places. Well, the issue was in the United States, Lehman Brothers went broke. Uh, in Spain, Italy, banks have either gone broke or had to be bailed out. What are the prospects of that happening to Chinese banks? Yes, I think there's, there's going to be a serious chance of that happening uh, for their banks, but I think they'll be quietly merging them together with the banks that are deemed healthy enough to survive. So this is what should have happened in the West as well, in America and in Europe. They should quietly have merged the banks together where there were problems, uh, issued them lines of liquidity, and merge them together uh, to avoid the, um, you know, the the panic and, and so on. But in America, uh, with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, they made a major monetary management mistake because they should have stepped in and fixed the problem, but they didn't do so. Francis, what about the shadow banking debt, which is what, about double GDP in China at the moment? And that is a, a significant issue uh, for them, but their way out of that is... As I was saying, you've got to keep your economy moving and growing. So the American approach was, well, let the economy crash, expose all the debts, wipe them all out, cause massive pain, and then maybe it will grow back. In the uh, So in the Chinese system, I don't think they'll allow that to happen because of the shock to the society of that process and the need to maintain political stability. And secondly, in China, I think the issue of the... Um, these banks are effectively organs of the state, means that they can't be allowed to fail um, as you know, in, the, in the way that the American ones failed. I, ironically, uh, in their communist system, uh, they're going to stand behind their failed banks, whereas in the American system, they said, oh, no, let the failed banks go uh, to the wall, like Lehman Brothers. Let Lehman Brothers go as a lesson. And the lesson was panic. Now, that was the lesson of the Lehman Brothers' uh, failure. And everybody who studied monetary policy and monetary economics knows that sort of lesson and has known that for the last, since the Great Depression. The fact that the Americans chose willfully to forget it at a critical moment in their history is you know, to their eternal shame, basically. I don't think the, China, the Communist Party of China will let that message um, be made and they won't make that mistake because they have more at stake in this game than the American monetary policy regulators. They have their careers in the Communist Party of China uh, and the, the, the grip of the Communist Party on power in China at stake in this. Oh, but, well, the other, the other issue is what's driving this is massive investment uh, from the uh, Chinese investors. I mean, they're, they're pouring money in and you, the result, you have buildings that are, and cities that are lying empty. And, and that is severely problematic. Um, uh, Japan has had monuments to these sorts of bad investment processes as well. And no one's saying that the process they've got there is perfect for doing this, uh, to, for managing these flows of money. It's obviously and self-evidently not. But they, they will they can redirect the existing flow to other more productive areas of their economy, and as a result, um, no, they've got a chance to, to to keep the money pumping and pull the economy out. What you don't want to do is turn off the money tap, 
if you turn off the money tap, the whole thing just falls apart. Uh, but you can divert those monetary flows elsewhere. Yes, there'll be a period of pain and slowdown, and they'll learn their lesson about overbuilding uh, monetary assets. But it's it's just a slowdown. It's not a you know, Great Depression type crisis, which is what the Americans triggered, because they threatened the whole of their banking system in the, in the United States. They still they they basically. Um, you know, effectively attacked their own system. It's like your autoimmune system goes berserk and decides to attack you. And that's effectively what the Americans decided to do to demonstrate their free market ideological credentials, um, which is just bad economics, bad monetary policy management. And the result is, is, all, is there for all to see. And I don't think the Chinese are going to make that mistake at this point in their history. Against that background, it's probably... Uh the Australian real estate market is fairly trivial, but do you think there'll be any effect on the flow of Chinese money into Australian real estate because of this? Uh, I, I think there's a two-edged sword on that. Yes, I think there would be. In any uh, normal country, you'd expect there to be a slowdown in the flow of money coming to Australia. The other side of it is, of course, that uh, uh, there are people in China who will be looking and who are always looking for safe havens for their investments, and Australia is a safe haven investment, as Switzerland is to people in Europe. Australia is the same to Asia and, and China, and we're getting vast flows on that basis alone. Uh, economic crisis, a political crisis, is always a reason to move money, more money offshore. And the other part of that is, of course, that China isn't just, in my view, I don't believe they're just going to turn off the money taps and let the whole thing fall apart. I think what they're going to do is they're going to divert the money tap away from property and they'll say to Chinese companies, if you want to invest in, you know, exporting to America, making things, railways, what have you, we'll do that, but we won't do um, great big apartment block towers where they're empty. You're expecting more rigorous management from the Chinese government to take care of this situation? I, I, whenever you mention rigorous management in the context of government, unfortunately, I'm forced to laugh. Um, what I'm expecting is the blunt instrument of the sledgehammer will be taken from, you know, ramming, allowing uh, the, the money tap, and they'll move it to some other area of the economy, uh, other areas of the economy which they will deem more productive to uh, to grow that part of the economy whilst the damaged part of the economy rebuilds itself. Uh, and at the same time, you keep the whole system stable. And if you look at the prescriptions of people like Paul Krugman and others for the American economy, that's exactly what they were saying. They were saying, yes, sure, the banks have got themselves into major trouble. The housing market has fallen apart completely. The government should borrow the money and take it and invest it in our decrepit national highway system in the United States, our decrepit national rail system in the United States, our decrepit airport system in the United States, and the list goes on and on and on. And in that process, Process, Americans would have rolled through the, the, great, the Great Recession, as it will be called, um, as a minor hiccup rather than the great big disaster it's been for the last, what is now, six years later. You're saying while the Chinese might go through a little bit of pain, they will manage it properly and they will emerge from it? I, I think they will manage it more effectively, yes. I think they'll have a small amount of pain and, and they will emerge from it. Francis Gray, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Yeah, well, you know, maybe it's a house of cards. There's a lot of debt there and uh, prices are obviously too high. Not unlike Australia. Not unlike Australia, yeah. So now, Leon, the news. Well, first of all, Gary, German business confidence has declined 
rapidly, providing further evidence that the economy is losing momentum. According to the Munich-based IFO Institute, it fell to 106.3 in August. That's down from 108. And that's dipped for the fourth straight month. So that tells us Germany's in trouble, Gary. The Russian, the, you know, the Ukrainian situation in Russia is not, not helping. No, and it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a worry because Germany, of course, is the powerhouse of the European economy. The US Consumer Confidence Index, however, rose to 92.4 compared with 81.8. Now, that's the best level for the index since February 2008, before the country plunged into recession. So that's a sign of recovery. Yeah, as we said last week, it looks it's slow, but it's on its way. On the other hand, the Congressional Budget Office is saying the US economy has only grown by 1.5% this year. I mean, that's actually much more pessimistic in the Obama administration's forecast of 2.6%. I guess you've got to wait and see. That's right. Now, Gary, the news from Australia is not that good. It's just been a string of bad news this week. The, according to BAS Shrapnel, the high Australian dollar is going to weigh on the economy, leading to slow jobs growth over the next four years. They're saying the mining investment boom has peaked and that leads to a significant fall in the dollar's value. But uh, nevertheless, the Australian dollar has averaged just over 93 cents in recent weeks. And they're saying reasonable value is uh, 20% lower at 75%, but it could take years to get there. Yeah, meantime, of course, is very bad for our exports and, and everything else. And the iron ore price has moved to a five-year low. Benchmark iron ore for immediate delivery to the port of Tianjin in China is currently trading at $88.20 a tonne. That's more than half a percent down from the 88.90 and well down from the 107 it was earlier this year. And the commodity has lost over 35% this year. It's most recent descent now, descent into eight days, and that's forced price levels last seen in September 2012. You remember what happened then, Gary, in September? September 2012, Wayne Swan had, there was a whole lot of write downs, and Wayne Swan had to back away from a surplus. And so it affects government's uh, finances. Yeah, the only surplus in this lot is the millions of tonnes of iron ore sitting in the Chinese port. Well, iron ore is Australia's biggest earner. And meanwhile, construction work done uh, fell uh, more than expected in the June quarter. According to the ABS, it slipped to 1.2%. There's also a parliamentary budget office report saying the provision of aged care disability insurance and the Prime Minister Tony Abbott's controversial paid parental leave scheme is going to cause a blowout in government spending over the next decade. And the PBO estimates that the PBL alone will require more than triple the funds the government hopes to raise through its $7 Medicare charge. And according to the report, the yet-to-be-included GP co-payment in the budget, the PPL, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, will be the main contributors to spending growth over the next decade. And the PPL will cost $7 billion a year by 2024-25. Well, there's a fair chance that it's dead in the water anyway. That's right. But what's dead in the water is the federal government's controversial $7 Medicare co-payment uh, because Clive Palmer delivered the government a fatal blow just hours before the first sitting of Parliament uh, during the after the five-week winter recess. And Palmer United Senators voted unanimously against the GP charge. Yeah, and I think that they're measuring the public and the public doesn't want it. That's right. And Labor and the Greens also oppose the unpopular payment. Now, ASIC is chasing stronger powers to reduce the risk of customers getting poor financial advice in the wake of a string of financial advice scandals. They're hoping to force bank managers to implement culture changes at their organisation. So I'd say good luck there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Jeremy Lawson, who's a former senior economist at the RBA at the Reserve Bank, he's uh, now at Standard Life. He's a global chief economist. He says housing prices here in Australia could be as much as 30% above fair value. That is, they're 30% overvalued. 
Yeah, and the banks are not helping by continuing to drop their interest rates. And the RBA this morning is saying that uh, there's too much money flowing into the system and that could destabilise the system further. Yeah, you've got to remember, you know, with some trepidation that housing was what uh, sparked the, the Great Depression. That's right, and, uh, and indeed, indeed. And now, uh, at the same time, uh, ratings agency Moody's has stripped WA, West Australia, of its AAA rating, warning of volatility in its revenue base, and Moody's downgraded the state's uh, and debt rating to AA1 and changed the outlook to stable from negative. And they're blaming the state's ongoing deficit position. And that's bad news because WA is, of course, a big driver of the Australian economy. It is that, but it's terribly dependent on the minerals. Absolutely, absolutely. And guess who's not paying tax, Gary? It's all the self-managed super funds. According to the latest figures from the Australian Taxation Office, franking credits and tax exemptions on superannuation have resulted in most of the nation's self-managed super funds avoiding the need to pay any income tax. And they indicate 300,000 self-managed super funds have dramatically cut or eradicated tax bills due to government concessions, with a probably likening worsening in the time since the data was released. And the data shows that over 400,000 funds across the country generated $32.9 billion of gross taxable income, but almost half of that was exempt from tax because it was already in the pension phase. A bit of smart accounting in there somewhere. Well, it's going to put the coalition under a lot of pressure to review tax breaks to rein in the budget deficit, Gary. And that's not going to be politically uh, popular. And now we've got us all the profits uh, for the season. Of course, it's the profit season. So health insurer NIB posted a net profit of $69.9 million. Uh, that's up 4%. Caltex reported a 1% lift in profit to $173 million. UGL reported net profit, uh, which includes restructuring costs and costs associated with the DTZD merger of 62.08 million. That's up 72.8%. Blue Scope reported a loss of 82.4 million. Recall, the document management company spun out of Brambles. Their profit fell to 42 million. And uh, Spotless, uh, which uh, announced its first results since rejoining the Australian Securities Exchange, made a net profit of $106.6 million, and that was above the company's own guidance of $103.4 million net profit. Beach, Energy, Beach Energy's net profit was $101.78. Accounting software maker MYB posted a record half-year result with revenue up 21% to $140 million and earnings up 29% to $70 million. Aurora, previously known as Australasia Packaging Distributed, Bruchin, which was demerged from Ancor, posted a pro forma net profit of $104.4 million. That's uh, up 45% on the year before. Finance group Macmillan Shakespeare, their net profit after tax, fell 11.6% to 54.97. Pacific Brands went into a loss of $224.5 million, which means they've got to do a lot of hard yakka, Gary. And specialty fashion group's net profit after tax fell 3.8% to $12.48 million. Bort Longyear reported a net loss of $142.8 million. Energy company AWE posted a net profit of $62.5 million. Marketing company Salmat reported a full-year profit of $0.2 million, which is a sharp 90 9.5% fall. Comes out of the loss of, uh, of print uh, media. That's right. And Mirabella Nickel posted a $373.8 million profit. That's uh, well up, well, much better than $68.9 million loss, $68.9 million loss in the previous year. Vitamin and dietary supplement Black company Blackmore posted a net profit of $25.4 million. That's up 1.8%. Flight Centre posted a profit of $376.5 million. Lendlease, their profit jumped 49.9% to 
9. Whitehaven's Whitehaven's net loss narrowed by 57% to 38.9 million. Boral recorded net profit of 173.3 million. Uh, that's a significant lift on the 212 million report, loss reported in the previous year. Air New Zealand's profit uh, rose uh, to New Zealand 262 million. That's a 235 million Aussie. That's up 45% the previous year. Seven West net profit uh, that went up 4.9% to 236.2 after the company posted a net loss in the previous corresponding period because of a write down in the magazine business. Mining services firm Woolley Parsons delivered a profit of 249.1 million. That's down 22%. 22%. Hellscopes full year loss of uh, 19.3 million, which is actually better than the 145.1 million contained in the statutory forecast in health prospectus. Logistics company Bacalese posted a net loss of 63.3 million, which is uh, a decline of the $18.9 million profit for the last financial year. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. That's great. And uh, next week we will have Brent another... Chidoba from uh, He's the Vice President of... Um, of uh, SurveyMonkey, based in Silicon Valley, and we had a long, long chat with him. Yep, thanks to Skype. So that's it, Leon. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.